0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repinchek, your host at National
1: Parks Traveler. This past week on The Traveler, we reported on news that Finland would return some remains and items, but far from all the items that were taken from Mason Verdi back in the 1890s before it was protected as a national park. We also ran a story on the death of two mountain lions at Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area with rodent poison found in both and took note of news from Badlands National Park in South Dakota that the National Park Service was expanding bison range there by 22,000 acres. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show... I visit with Alexander Ochoa, a postdoctoral researcher at The Ohio State University who analyzed the impacts of Texas puma genes on endangered Florida panthers at Everglades National Park and Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. We also entice you to partake a winter visit to Big Bend National Park in Texas and look at a proposal calling for private businesses to take over management of some National Park campgrounds. Among the pine forests and palmetto thickets of South Florida, something of a miracle in wildlife biology has played out over the course of several decades. A creature once thought destined to endure a fate similar to that of the passenger pigeon has rebounded and seems poised to move towards a sustainable population. And yet, the Florida panther remains one of the most endangered mammals in North America. Since 1967, the Florida panther has been listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. That's the country's hallmark legislation designed to prevent species from becoming extinct. The problem, in short, is a lack of individual panthers and the inbreeding that has resulted from that. Today, the future of the Florida panther is cloudy, but there's some hope. Alexander Ochoa, a postdoctoral researcher, in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Organismal Biology at The Ohio State University, and his colleagues have been taking a close look at the panther's gene pool. He joins us today to discuss his findings. Welcome to The Traveler, Alexander.
2: Oh, Thank you, thank you so much. It's a pleasure
1: to be here. What intrigued you about the genetic research that you and your team tackled?
2: Well, uh, the Florida panther resembles perhaps one of very few examples of inbreeding depression um, occurring in, in natural populations and most specifically in the wild. Um, and as a result of this inbreeding depression um, phenomenon, um, there has been really got good uh, documentation regarding the emergence of certain deleterious traits in the Florida panther population, such as um, heart failure, cryptorchidism, low testosterone, um, high parasite load. And what intrigued us about this project was um, to be able to provide a first step, in this case, uh, a genome assembly of the Florida Panther, in order to explore these deleterious traits in the future.
1: Now, um, I guess it was back in the the 1990s or so that um, the National Park Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Service decided to try and tackle this problem by introducing um, some Texas pumas into the Florida panther habitat. Now, are are the pumas and the panthers the same same animal? Yeah, so
2: they're the same species. Um, So actually, pumas, mountain lions, cougars uh, panthers, um, as we know them in the Americas are essentially the same species, Puma con color.
1: Okay. And, um, now you touched on some of the problems facing the, the Florida panthers in the 1990s. Um, and that was a result of uh, a really small resident population. I mean, didn't at one point they get down to maybe 15 or 20 animals?
2: Yeah. So studies point out to, uh, having only less than 30 Florida panthers in the wild um, in the mid-1990s.
1: And and how many Texas pumas did they bring in to try and reverse this trend?
2: So originally, eight uh, female pumas from Texas were introduced um, into Deverglades National Park and uh, Big Cypress National Preserve. And out of those eight female pumas that were introduced, um, we know that five uh, successfully bred in Florida panther habitat.
1: And and was that a one-time introduction, so to speak?
2: Yeah, it was a one-time introduction. And so I believe certain um, pumas from Texas were introduced um, in 1995, but then others were introduced in 96 and 97, perhaps, um, to be honest, I need to check this fact.
1: Okay. But, but overall, we're just talking eight individuals.
2: Yeah. Eight, eight individuals, uh, more or less in the mid 1990s.
1: Now your research involved analyzing the genomes of the Florida Panthers and the Texas Pumas and their offspring. Um, I'm a, I'm a layman, I'm a writer, I'm not a biologist. How did you know whether the genes came from a panther or a puma?
2: Uh, so um, basically, um, we know, well, the a project, the genome project starts with uh, biologists um, collecting um, samples in the field. Um, and in this case, biologists um, collected um, blood samples. Um, from these individuals so um, for one uh, we do trust the work biologists have been doing um, both in Florida and in Texas um, to so as to be certain about the origin of these samples. Now once we are able to extract DNA from these samples and we get these samples sequenced at a DNA sequence facility uh, we're able to corroborate this by simply comparing the sequences we got back from the sequencing facility to a gene um, database. So, and by making these comparisons, we're able to to be certain about the origin of, of you know, that DNA and those samples.
1: Was there a, um, a genetic base level, if you, if you will, when they brought those eight Pumas over from Texas? So you had a... Um... A a picture of the genes that were being brought into the Florida panther habitat? No.
2: um, Researchers and biologists did have a picture about the traits of the Texas pumas that were were being uh, brought into Florida panther habitat. In this case, um, they were just basically looking for individuals that were healthy and did not have the traits, these deleterious traits, that were found in the Florida panther. However, at the time, it did make sense to introduce pumas from Texas since it is the closest population to the Florida panther. So in that regard, um, that's why uh, pumas from Texas were brought in to Florida panther habitat.
1: As opposed to bringing some in from, from elsewhere in the country, so to speak.
2: Correct. As opposed to bringing in pumas from, you know, other places of the country and why not other places from the continent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And what did your research conclude in terms of the impact that the Texas pumas had on that Florida panther population?
2: So the main conclusion is that at least initially after these these Texas individuals were introduced in Florida is that Now, the admixed offspring, which we call the F1 um, Florida Panthers, um, increased their genetic diversity by a factor of three. So, indeed, we were able to corroborate that the Florida Panther population of the mid-1990s had very, very limited genetic variation. And after this introduction took place, well, the genetic diversity of Florida Panthers' Increased dramatically.
1: Do you know um, how many how many generations we've seen since that initial arrival of the eight uh, pumas? I
2: would say about ten generations of Florida Panthers.
1: Wow, and and yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, I've been following the Florida Panther story for for quite a few years, and uh, it really looked like it was going to crash because of the inbreeding, and yet you're finding that. Uh, that has been cured? Is it safe to say that? Um,
2: To a certain degree. Um, So I think it's more accurate to say that many of those um, deleterious traits or detrimental traits observed in the Florida panther of the mid-1990s has decreased in frequency um, to an extent to which the current Florida panther population does carry those same diseases, but at a much lower frequency.
1: Is it something where you might need additional introductions of uh, panthers from you know, Texas or Glacier, Montana, you know, from elsewhere to, to further bolster the genetic gene pool in the Florida panther population?
2: So perhaps not at this point. But I think the advisable thing to do is to monitor um, the occurrence of these traits in the current Florida uh, Florida panther population and to avoid an increase um, of such traits. If that happens, then perhaps, yes, we can start thinking of uh, a management plan that could increase that genetic diversity or that could erode um, the genetic diversity linked to those deleterious traits. But, um, I think so far Panthers are doing well and, you know, it's always good. I don't want to say it's good to have diseases in a population, but it's always good to have those at low frequencies.
1: Sure. And, uh, as I believe your, your paper said, uh, the current population of Florida Panthers is around 200 or so.
2: Yeah. So it's in the low hundreds. Um, let me, let me get this right. I think, Um, The current number is between 120 and 230 individuals, you know, most of which are healthy individuals and are not showing the aforementioned deleterious traits.
1: Okay. We're talking today with Alexander Ochoa, a researcher at The Ohio State University who's been uh, analyzing the the gene pool, if you will, of the Florida panther population um, to take a look at how um, an introduction of genes from Texas pumas that were brought into Florida back in the 1990s has played out. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: listener and reader support make national parks traveler possible every day of the year if you enjoy travelers content please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org acadia national park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the united states it is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable that's why friends of acadia exists Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So,
1: Alexander, you learned some fascinating things about the the sensory capabilities in the panthers that stem from this infusion of Puma genes, no? No.
2: Correct. So we, well, we discovered that, um, you know, like Florida Panthers and Pumas in general, you know, as a species have a gene that, you know, genes related to the sense of, of smell, their number has been decreasing um, genome wide. While at the same time, we also found a relatively low number of, of genes uh, that have been associated with the refinement of uh, vision predominantly, and so we believe um, at least in the evolutionary history of pumas that there 's been a trade off between um, you know genes associated with the sense of smell and genes associated with um, vision um, specifically because pumas are um, nocturnal hunters. So, so at least that's the hypothesis we have put forward. Um, however, you know, it still needs to be corroborated by future
1: studies. So, so the Texas Pumas had basically better eyesight than the Florida Panthers?
2: No, no, no. So what I'm trying to say is that both Texas Pumas and Florida Panthers, genome, uh, genome-wide, um, have lost genes related to the sense of smell Whereas at the same time, for both populations, there has been a refinement in the sense of of vision.
1: Okay. So could we assume that would have taken place regardless of the introduction of the Pumas?
2: Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, So so the study is divided in two parts. Um, The first one... Um, is The first part um, is, is regarding uh, the evolutionary and demographic history of pumas as a species. Um, and the second part is actually being able to see at the genome level what has been the contribution of the Texas pumas introduced into Florida panther habitat.
1: So from what you've learned, what you've been able to put together in a, in a genetic map, if you will, how could and, and how should wildlife biologists use this genetic blueprint going forward?
2: So, yes, in our study, we have generated two sets of data. The first one has to do with the genome assembly we have just created. And the second part of the study um, deals with uh, the DNA sequence material that has been generated from Texas pumas, Florida panthers, and their offspring so having this data in hand we could simply map the DNA sequences from these populations back to our genome assembly or genome reference and we can start looking at these point differences between the DNA sequences from both populations and the the implication is that some of this genetic material Um, from which we're able to see differences um, actually contributed to eroding um, the deleterious traits observed in the Florida panther. Um, Also, um, by using different computer algorithms, we're able to infer exactly which of these introduced genes was actually beneficial and or detrimental to the Florida panther population. And so we're able to provide managers with a tool, with a data set of, of, of introduced genes that you know, could be beneficial and detrimental, and also of, of these um, DNA polym- polymorphisms that we're able to observe in the Florida panther and be able to infer you know. If those mutations are deleterious, are beneficial, and to further monitor those potentially deleterious mutations in the floor in the current Florida panther population,
1: wouldn't this require more of a heavier hand, so to speak, in in managing wildlife populations? Um, is that where we're heading? I mean, you, you hear all the controversy over the genetically modified um, vegetation and whatnot, and in agricultural crops. I mean, uh, are we going to be put in a place of doing that with wildlife just because we're we're turning a lot of these places into biological islands and to to keep a healthy gene pool?
2: Yeah, I don't have a straight answer for that, but um, at least in the Florida Panther case, I I can see how managers hardly had any choice. Um, you know, suddenly they were confronted with. Um, Two scenarios: the first one, not do anything in that regard, and you know, just perhaps um, foresee uh, you know a, a population decline and potential local extinction of the Florida panther population, or introduce individuals from the closest population and try to restore genes in the Florida panther population. Now, having said this, uh, management plans need to be carefully crafted. And this is because um, natural populations may also have something we call local adaptations. This means that the genetic material of a certain population or of the individuals from a certain population is adapted to a very particular environment. And so, we could assume, you know, Florida Panthers did carry local adaptations and so did Texas Pumas. And so, you know, the risk of mixing individuals from different populations is that also at some point those local adaptations can become eroded. So, so it's pretty much a balance um, between, you know, the cost and the benefit of the very particular system.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh situation because if you look out across the national park system um there are similar situations whether it's uh mountain lions at Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area or um uh the the wolf situation up at Isle Royale National Park uh, which um, the park service has uh, tackled so far by by bringing in more wolf numbers um and I'm sure there's other examples across the national park system where um, taking a closer look at the the, the gene pool um, could point to some obvious answers or or some not so obvious answers.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, that's that's basically that's basically um, correct. So um, in my view, at the time, you know, managers perhaps wanted to ameliorate this effect by introducing pumas from the closest population, which was absolutely right in in my opinion
1: yeah now um, this isn 't the end for you in terms of studying the genetic mixture in Florida panthers is it you 've got a, another study that you 'd like to focus on
2: correct. so now that we have a genome and um, that we have assembled it, and now, based on this information, since we we are also able to locate where genes in the genome are um, i I think it 's important to mention that um genes as as we know them um, are possibly at most like 2% of the entire genome size of of the Florida panther genome. And so a crucial step is locating, you know, where all those genes are, uh, 20,000 of them in mammalian genomes. And so once we have done that uh, in this paper as well, we're now able to zoom into specific genes and be able to look at, you know, where changes were most likely to happen in the Florida panther population. And again, to determine, you know, what was the effect of of the introduction in these very particular genes.
1: Looking at um, South Florida, um, it's a pretty heavily urbanized area in some places and and that really seems to be um offering a chokehold of sorts on, on florida panther do you have any any gut feeling for uh, how the species will um continue to uh survive down there i mean will they need uh, occasional uh, introductions of genes from outside the population or do you think that they'll be able to um spread out if you will and, and survive well there's
2: always hope um, um so it is true um Definitely, you know, Florida panthers are animals, um, especially males, um, that require huge home ranges, and you know, this is attainable in certain places of south of South Florida, such as you know Everglades National Park and um, Big Cypress National Preserve. But it is also true that there may be other or there are other satellite populations of Florida population of yeah, Florida panthers that are not as big in size, and so the hope um, for the future is to be able to you know to be able to 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 connect these populations as biological corridors so that you know gene flow can take place. Uh, without management assistance, right? It could take place um, in a more natural way.
1: Well, it's fascinating research that you're doing, Alexander, and uh, look forward to your next study and and what you can uh, clarify from the the genes um, in the Florida Panther. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Absolutely. Always a pleasure.
0: See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
1: Big is a great descriptor for Big Bend National Park where the park's more than 801,000 acres range from desert lands to mountain peaks and are rimmed on the south side by one of the country's great rivers, the Rio Grande. Big Bend was named for its location on a bend of the Rio Grande. There are three different entrances to the park, Persimmon Gap, Rio Grande Village, and Maverick Junction, and five visitor centers, Persimmon Gap, Rio Grande Village, Panther Junction, Chisos Basin, and Castellon. Drive through this park, deep in Texas, and you'll come upon the vast expanse of the Chihuahuan Desert and the volcanic Chisos Mountains that were created from violent eruptions, as well as the uplift and then the erosion of an ancient seabed. As Traveler's contributing photographer, Rebecca Ladson, herself a geologist, put it, you'll see textbook examples of volcanic and sedimentary geology, with some faulting and folding thrown in for good measure. If diving into the park's geology isn't for you, well, there are other ways to enjoy this spectacular park. You could explore the historic remains of the Sam Nail Ranch found along the Ross Maxwell Scenic Drive or soak in the 105 degree waters of the hot springs in the park's aptly called Hot Springs Historic District where a bathhouse once stood. Or banish the thought you could simply relax. Inside the park, there are about 200 miles of trails, easy, moderate, and even strenuous. A diverse ecosystem, think Chisos Mountains and Chihuahuan Desert, 450 species of birds, 75 species of mammals, including black bears, mountain lions, and javelinas, and more than 1,000 species of plants. Back in 2017, the park opened the Fossil Discovery Exhibit the largest addition to the interpretive exhibits in Big Ben in more than 50 years. Located about 14 miles north of Panther Junction, this exhibit contains the fossil record of dinosaurs that once roamed this landscape for more than 130 million years. This self-guided, kid-friendly exhibit was designed to feature four ancient ecosystems that make up the park's diverse geologic and paleontological history. The storyline is driven by Big Ben's position relative to the western interior seaway that spanned North America during the Cretaceous period and by changes to the seaway during that geologic period. Now, Big Bend is not easy to reach. Situated about halfway between El Paso and Laredo, Big Bend is a vast swath of riverine corridor, high and rugged terrain, scenic canyons, and arid plains. It's not near any cities or transportation hubs. It's not on the way to anything and at the end of the day you really have to want to get there to get there. Now some say that Big Bend is the least known of all the national park designated units in the lower 48. True or not, the place does have an image problem. Native cultures believe that this was a place where the great spirit stored rocks. When Spanish explorers encountered this area they simply called it the uninhabited land. Today, relatively few Americans even know there's a national park there. But there is a national park there, and it's a fascinating place, rich in intriguing geology, visions of fortunes that failed, and it's also a magnet for birders, many who hope to spy the Kalima warbler that flits up from Mexico to breed. Every spring, a hundred or more individuals leave their wintering grounds, heading north into Big Bend to find a mate, nest, and then hightail it back to Mexico. The preferred nesting habitat is in lush oak, maple, and pinyon pine, with extensive grass and leaf litter on the ground where the actual nest is constructed. In the Chisos Mountains, this translates to the north facing slopes of humid canyons above 6,000 feet in elevation. Now, Big Bend is prevailingly sunny and warm, but temperatures vary with both season and altitude and the weather can change very quickly, and sometimes quite dangerously, any time of year. Fall and spring weather is typically pleasant, and winter is usually mild. Summers are hot, as befits a subtropical desert, so if 100-degree heat is a turnoff, you'll probably want to avoid the hottest months of May and June. During the rainy season, which brings frequent thunderstorms from mid-June to October, you need to watch out for flash floods and dangerous lightning. If you're thinking of a winter visit to Big Bend, know that December temperatures average between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit during the day and 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit at night. Indeed, the park's high season is November through April when temperatures are most enjoyable. When you do visit, find some time to leave your room, tent, or RV after dark. Big Bend is designated a gold tier dark sky park. In other words, turn your head skyward after dark on a moonless night and the countless numbers of stars will dazzle you. To help you capture your visit in the best possible light, head over to nationalparkstraveler.org and read Rebecca Latson's armchair photography guides to Big Bend. Sure, Big Bend National Park might not be easy to get to, but it's certainly worth the effort.
0: The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
1: Now, a commentary. How do you like your National Park campground? Do you wish there was Wi-Fi so you could stay abreast of news or sports? Do you want a food truck to show up so you didn't have to cook over a camp stove? Is there a need for hot and cold water showers in each and every campground in the National Park System? A two-page list of recommended improvements to park campgrounds calls for some of those changes though it remains to be seen how fully Interior Secretary David Bernhardt embraces those suggestions. Interior Subcommittee on Recreation Enhancement through Reorganization drafted that document. Along with some campground amenity improvements, the document suggests that some blackout dates be instituted for holders of the National Parks and Federal Recreational Land Senior Pass. That's that $80 lifetime pass those 62 and older can buy, and which provides a 50% discount on campground fees. The document also recommends that perhaps National Park campgrounds should offer cabins for nightly rental, and maybe offer a tent rental pool as well. Does that sound good to you? Should the National Park Service turn over management and operation of more of its campgrounds to private businesses? That's what this document is suggesting. And while many campgrounds suffer from deferred maintenance, the draft document suggests that concessionaires be encouraged to tackle those needs on their own by ensuring that they would be repaid by subsequent concessionaires if they ever lost or surrendered the campground management contract. Now, the subcommittee's recommendations don't call for a wholesale turnover of park campgrounds to private operators. For now, it is just proposing a pilot program of five to ten campgrounds in the system for what the document calls modernization enhancement or even new construction, especially in park units with low levels of visitor services that now limit public use. The incentive would be an allocation of funds equal to current deferred maintenance, but available for discretionary use to improve the campground and associated infrastructure. These suggestions come at a time when, according to Campground of America's 2019 North American Camping Report, that park-goers younger than baby boomers want more amenities with their campfires. The report also claims a decline in national park campers. It says that, quote, campers continue to be reliant on public lands for their camping trips. About six in ten camper nights is spent on public lands or in public campgrounds. While the proportion of camper nights spent at both state and national parks is near 2017 levels, there has been a proportional drop in camper nights in national parks since 2016, suggesting that as campers spend more time camping, they are devoting those additional camper nights to different locations, such as public and private land outside of national park campgrounds, The subcommittee's report alludes to those trends in its call for greater investment in national park campgrounds, through private businesses. What do you think? Is this a good proposal? Or should we be concerned that this approach will further commercialize National Park campgrounds and detract from your ability to truly enjoy the park setting and surrounding nature? Would this move, if adopted, prompt the National Park Service to reduce its staffing and eliminate campfire ranger talks, figuring that concessionaires can handle those as well? You can leave your thoughts about this proposal on nationalparkstraveler.org where you'll find a copy of the draft report. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we visit with the filmmakers behind The Elephant Queen, an eloquent documentary that follows an elephant herd through the lush rainy season and into the deadly arid dry season in Kenya. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world, and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcasts. Visit them at OrangetreeProductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas.